Thank you for that warm welcome. And I have to say that uh, you may be wondering, you go, well, he doesn't look too Dutch to me. But I, I will have you know that my Dutch friends, do, they have given me honorary Dutchman status. So uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great privilege to be here with you and to be the inaugural uh, Kuiper Lecturer. Um, but I'm going to start the inaugural Kuiper Lecture by asking you about someone that you probably wouldn't tend to associate with Kuiper, and that is a singer named Joan Jett. Now, somebody knows who she is, all right, right, and you're like younger. That's great, all right. So, so Joan Jett is perhaps most famous for a song called I Love Rock and Roll. It was a remake of a song. She's one of the people who did the remake, and it went platinum for her. Well, she's not the only one that loves rock and roll. I love rock and roll. I love rock and roll. Uh, in fact, I've loved rock and roll pretty much since age 11. And in fact, full disclosure, I, I love rock and roll so much that I often fantasized about wanting to be a rock star myself. Now, some people say, well, you still do. And full disclosure about that, actually, I am a amateurish electric bass guitar player, and I have played in a few gigs. And in fact, my singer from one of those gigs is even here today. Wasn't expecting that, but he's here. Who knew? So I've loved rock and roll for a very long time. A very long time. But I don't only love rock and roll. I also love Jesus. And I've loved Jesus for at least as long as I've loved rock and roll. And what you have to understand for me is that uh, loving Jesus and loving rock and roll hasn't always been a smooth ride. You know, when I was in college, I had a lot of spiritual growth. I'm so thankful for that growth. But I also had a major crisis with my love for rock and roll and my love for Jesus. In fact, uh, you know, I, I, mean, I was the guy who was listening to like Zeppelin and Iron Maiden and a lot of other people, uh, which is probably also what you weren't expecting to hear today. Uh, but uh, this was not exactly welcome in the Bible study that I was a part of. And people couldn't understand, how do you, you keep coming to Bible study, uh, you really seem committed, but you and that music. I mean, I don't understand it. And it was really, really hard for me to explain to them how I thought I could love rock and roll and love Jesus, and it really was not a problem. At one point, I have to admit, the crisis came to a point where I threw out all of my music, right, and started listening to only Christian music for a while. Now, it, well, I see some people like shaking their heads. Wow, okay. <laughs> Love to hear your stories. So, but the point is this, is that I did that before slowly rebuilding my collection again about a year and a half later. 
I, I did that because I really wanted my commitment to Christ to be preeminent. But the reason that I started rebuilding my collection was because I had an intuition, but it was only an intuition. I had an intuition that I could appreciate what people did with their music. I mean, look, I, I may have wanted to be a rock star, but it wasn't because I wanted the rock, rock star lifestyle, right? I mean, I just loved what they did when they performed. I just loved how it sounded. I just appreciated how well they played. In fact, what it was is, for me, loving rock and roll was really my way of appreciating God's creation. But I didn't have any kind of language for explaining how I could have great fidelity to Jesus and still listen to Iron Maiden. And certainly in my Bible study, nobody thought that I should. It was always a problem. So I had no biblical or theological argument, only an intuition, only the thought that it seemed like it was okay to be able to appreciate the good things that came out of creation without needing to go to the dark side of things in the creation. Thankfully, I didn't only have uh, this, it didn't stay in intuition. For a while, I lived in this sort of land of tension, this land of crisis at times. Loving God, loving rock and roll, only having an intuition, never being able to explain it. Enter that man up there with the blue suit and with the briefcase shaking Warfield's hand. When I was in seminary, so around age 27, I read those stone lectures that Dr. Fickert was just talking about. And then I discovered that my intuition was correct. And here are the words I read that told me that my intuition was correct. This is what Kuiper says in the first lecture, Calvinism, a life system. He's talking about this doctrine of common grace. I'd never heard of the doctrine of common grace at that point. But here's what he said. Calvinism has not only honored man for the sake of his likeness to the divine image, but also the world as a divine creation. And has at once placed to the front the great principle that there is a particular grace which works salvation, and also a common grace by which God, maintaining the life of the world, relaxes the curse which rests upon it, arrests its process of corruption, and thus allows, allows is the key word here, allows the untrammeled development of our life in which to glorify himself as creator. Thus domestic life regained its independence, trade and commerce realized their strength and liberty, art and science were set free from every ecclesiastical bond and restored to their own inspirations, and man began to understand the subjection of all nature with its hidden forces and treasures to himself as a holy duty imposed upon him by the original ordinances of paradise have dominion over them. Henceforth, and this this is what delivered it for me, henceforth the curse should no longer rest upon the world itself, but upon that which is sinful in it. And instead of monastic flight from the world, The duty is now emphasized of serving God in 
the world in every position in life. That was a theological oxygen mask for me. Finally, the tension could go away. Now I saw that, yes, indeed, I really could love rock and roll and appreciate what was happening there and love other things too. Politics, art, law, medicine, all those things, I could love those because it was my responsibility to engage those things and love those things. I could do that. What a relief for me. But it still didn't resolve one thing. Sometimes when you love rock and roll as I did and do, people will say, you know, here's my problem. Here's my problem. The Bible says don't be worldly. Now, Vince, you were just talking about loving the world. The Bible says don't be worldly. You know, James 4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And then this verse, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, doesn't come from the Father, but from the world. So people might say that to me. And it, it could suggest that in spite of the permission I thought I was getting from Kuiper, maybe you didn't have this permission after all. So what do you do about that? Well, what you do is actually keep reading the text and see what it actually means. So think about that last set of verses I was talking about, about not loving the world. And it says everything in the world, three things, three things. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I want you to notice one thing that they all have in common. None of them are about the stuff of creation. But they're all about distorted desires when people operate in creation. So the problem with worldliness isn't the creation itself. The problem isn't with what God has made. It's what people do with what God has made. The problem is about your allegiance in God's world. Not the world itself, not the created order. Sometimes when people think worldly, they immediately assume it means creation. But when the Bible's telling us not to be worldly, what really it's telling us is don't live in God's world as if the world is all there is and if it, there isn't a creator of that world. If you're living in God's world and you're taking your cues from someone other than the creator, then yes, you've got a big problem. You've got a big problem. Because your allegiance isn't to the God who made this world. But if your allegiance is to the God who made this world, if you're not worshiping the world itself or worshiping the God who made the world, then your problem isn't with the world. 
You don't have a problem with the world. We're being warned about living in God's world like it's not God's world. That's what being worldly is. Caring about what's there, what emerges from the world, that's fine. It's not fine when caring for it, when loving it, moves from loving it to worshiping it. When you're worshiping it, when you're making it more than what it's supposed to be, when you're turning it into an idol, that's when you've moved into the land of worldliness, rather into the land of stewarding God's creation. So what that brings us to then is this truth. The problem is is distorted desires in the world And the other truth goes back to what Kuiper said. We go back to this first commission, I like to call it, that God gives on the first page of the Bible. Now, now I know that if I say great commission, you might think Matthew 28, and Matthew 28 is a great commission, but it's not the only great commission. There's a great commission on page one. I like to call it the forgotten great commission. There's a lot of amnesia about that great commission. You might say, not here at Covenant College. I hope not. I hope not. But on that first page, the first command, when God says, have dominion over the creation, this is built into what it is to be a human being. And having dominion means, God says, here's my world. Humans, you who are made in my image, you've got this great responsibility and opportunity to take this world and lead it to its flourishing. Somebody might say, might be looking at me and saying, you know, I don't see the word stewardship in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, okay, all right, all right. So think about it this way. Let's do a little question and answer. Of course, I'm only asking the question and answering, but here we go. So what do you call a ruler who rules over their domain well? What might you say about the way they've managed their domain? You might call it that they're a good steward of their domain. And if they're a bad ruler, they're a bad steward of their domain. To rule well is to be a steward. It's God's world, not ours, okay? It's his world. He gave us the responsibility to rule And and we are responsible to him for how we rule. Now, if that's the case, then we're dealing with stewardship. So stewardship is central to this first great commission that there is on page one. And the thing is that Genesis 3 is not an excuse for avoiding the first great commission. Because some people might go, it's great that you talked about page one. Did you talk about page three? Because on page three, the fall happens and the curse happens. Doesn't that mean that your great commission goes away? Nope. No, it doesn't. Because I want you to notice something about what happens with the curse. The curse is never a curse that guarantees utter futility for everything that humans do. Yes, there'll be weeds and thorns and thistles with what humans do, but there will be fruit as well. God never says, okay, here comes the curse. You get nothing. That's not what he says. He says, no, you'll get something, but it's a lot harder to get it now. 
but you can't get it. So the commission remains. God never said, you remember what I said on page one, just veto it. No, no, no. God says, I gave you that commission, and that commission remains. We do ourselves no favor by being those who have amnesia about that first commission. And because that first commission is there for us, what it meant for me was was that I recognize that, yes, I have permission to love God's world, to participate in God's world. It means that the way that I live my life after the benediction is as important as what I'm doing between the invocation and the benediction. It means that everything I do with my life really matters to God. So many people struggle to wonder whether if they're not doing something that isn't typically spiritual, if God really cares about it. Yes, he does. You know why he cares about it? Because God created human beings and he cares about all of human life. That's why. Nowhere do we see all the different things that humans do in human life that God says, you know, those things just aren't as important because they're not really, quote-unquote, spiritual. Friends, that's misunderstanding what spiritual actually means. Here's what spiritual actually means. Spiritual means humans made alive by God's Spirit living in God's world like humans ought to live in God's world. And that means everything, everything, from rock and roll to economics, that God says, my friends, here is my world. Get after it. Here is my world. Here is opportunity for you to take my world and work with my world, be creative in my world, and serve me and bring me glory in my world. Now, please understand, it doesn't mean that God says, therefore, what you do on Sunday isn't quite so important, because it's very important what you do on Sunday. No, what it means is, is that everything we do is important. It's all before the face of God, all under God. And this doctrine of common grace means that though the fall has happened, God puts the brakes on. And in putting the brakes on, it's possible for us to have fruitful post-benediction lives. Most of you aren't going to be going into full-time Christian service, I imagine. And there might be days when you're wondering if what you're doing matters. Wonder no longer. Wonder no longer. Because you are human, and because God gave humans the responsibility for stewarding his world, participating in his world, then all those things you're interested in, all those things that you love, 
They matter. They matter. Yes, be wary of turning that love into worship. But as long as you don't turn that love into worship, then embrace what you love. Be a leader in the domain of what you love. Serve God in that area of what you love. Knowing that he says, yes, this is indeed good and proper. Worship me alone. Serve me in my world. And when you do that, you discover that loving the world is not in competition with loving God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being people in your world, a world you have created, a world for which you have given us the opportunity, privilege, and responsibility to serve you by stewarding your world. Lord, sometimes it's hard to discern the difference between really loving something and when we're crossing the line to worship. Help us to have discernment about that. But Lord, help us in that discernment process to be encouraged by the fact that you have given us our lives as human beings in your world, be lives that are stewarded well, not just on Sunday, but every day. And that what we do every day is something that is such a privilege. Thank you, Lord, for that privilege. Thank you that we are not just subject to futility, but that we can have fruitfulness even though it's harder. Thank you for those that help us to see that we have permission to participate and love your world. And help us, Lord, by your Spirit to make sure that the love we have is not a love that competes with truly loving you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.